0: All right, all you 60s hippies out there, just settle down. That's the only time you'll ever hear me play a 60s song back at TBC. The song was made popular by the birds. It was actually first written by, well, it was first written by Solomon, of course, but originally by Pete Seeger in the 1950s. It was a folk song, and the title was To Everything There's a Season. It was The Birds that picked up Seeger's song and they, they remade it. They actually made it better because of, well, drugs and rock and roll, basically. Uh, earned Billboard's Hits number, number one chart on December 4th, 1965. And what's amazing is that so many of those lines come, and, and Seeger will tell you this, and there's some videos you can go back and watch, that the lines came right out of the King James Version of Ecclesiastes chapter three putting the birds and, and Seeger on the same page as uh, Sinead O'Connor and you too, taking swaths of scripture and putting them together for the secular world to listen to, uh, hopefully to impact the culture. And, and we all know that w- what was happening in the 60s and why this bird's song became so popular at that time. The last lines tell the whole story, it's a, a time of love, a time of hate, a time of peace. I swear it's not too late. And the anti-war, of course, uh, Forrest Gump came along and and he picked up that, that Bird song and you just saw so many scenes from Forrest Gump talk about that 60s era. Seeger believed that Ecclesiastes 3, the poem, was an extraordinarily beautiful piece of literature, just across cultures and in religious context and outside of it. Presumably, it's understood to be, of course, the work of Solomon. It's contributed to the preacher, Kohelet, in this book. There are exactly 14 pairs of words, a multiple of seven, of course, in Hebrew and in the Old Testament, seven being the sign of completeness or perfection. And although there's no logical order, this song gives a complete summary of all of human existence when you read through it. The poem takes the whole sweep of human experience from birth to death, from war to peace, and it includes everything in between on the spectrum of what's listed. I want you to see something that's, that's extremely overt that we often do not see in Ecclesiastes chapter three in the structure. The poem, the poem itself is verses two through eight in your scriptures. Uh, verse nine, there's a question or a problem that emerges right at the end to kind of explain the poem. But it's void of any mentions of God and really any element of hope. The poem, when you read it by itself, there's nothing different that you wouldn't be able to read in, in any modern day poet or a postmodern poet, we would expect to, to write the things that are written in this song. Verses 10 through 15, 11 through 15, really, is, is drastically different from the song itself. It has eight mentions, specific mentions of God, and several elements of hope. So one way to look at Ecclesiastes chapter three and to, to understand what's going on in the context here is to see two perspectives. There's a perspective of the poem at the beginning of the chapter, and then there's a perspective at the end of the chapter, a divine perspective. From man's perspective that comes out of the poem, it's a perspective of life that is seasonal. And finite human beings Ultimately, we don't, we don't know how the seasons come and go. We just experience these seasons. They come to us, and we live through them. Uh, understandably, we, are, we get the feeling that we're running out of time as we listen to the poem and as we sing the song. From a divine perspective, at the, at the end, after this poem is listed, we have an infinite God who is redeeming the time. He's putting all the seasons of life together for one ultimate goal and one ultimate purpose. From man's perspective, life situations and circumstances are always changing. God gives us freedom to make choices during the seasons of life. And so this time in this period of my life, it feels like, Natalie, it's a time to give birth, right? <laughs> you guys are like, any day now. Um, This is, this feels like it's going to be a season of, of hate. This is going to be a season of war. This is going to be a season where we pluck up instead of put down into the ground. From God's perspective, he's making all things beautiful in his time, in his perfect plan. He endures forever. He will redeem history through all the seasons, and all of the circumstances will culminate in the glorification and the coming of God's kingdom when Jesus returns. There's this, there's this difficulty of time, right? How do we navigate these seasons in life? There's a famous playwright, Roman playwright, who put it this way, I think this is pretty good. He says, the gods confound the man who has cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into pieces. Confound him who in this place has set up a sundial. You know how enslaved we are to time in American culture? How many of you guys uh, keep a a watch on your wrist? You're probably one of the very few countries in the world that do that. And if we would take them off, maybe we could enjoy siestas every once in a while, like some of our friends from down south, or we wouldn't be so consumed about how much we can get done in a, a period of time. Um, Horseman, is a really good quote. He says, "Lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with sixty diamond minutes. No reward is offered, for they are gone forever." What if we could only just have two more hours into every single day? Two more hours just to relax and rest, put our feet up and recharge for the next day. Solomon's quest for meaning in life directed his attention to time, to seasons. Cycles, situations, circumstances that seem to come and go. Um, Something that most people want more of, time. Something that no person has ultimate control over, time. How does the gospel teach us to think differently about our time and the days that God has given us to enjoy on this earth? This is the question that Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is going to answer. Look down at verse one, and let's take apart some of these verses a little bit. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, verse one is giving us an open summary, all right? And in verse one, you're gonna see a a chiasm, what it's called. At the beginning, you've got this mention of everything, and at the end, every matter. These are the bookends that kinda tie these two things together. In the middle, you've got season and you've got time. Now, in Hebrew, time and season, and in Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one, these are two different Hebrew words, time and season. They're a little differently nuanced depending on the context in which you find these verbs or these words. However, uh, here they're used in parallel structure, s- saying the same thing, maybe getting more specific in the second line. All of this is driving us to this, this idea that Solomon is, is putting together all of life, all seasons, every single matter. And he goes and he, and he puts down these, these pairs. They're called Hebrew merisms, from life to death. It covers the ends of the spectrum and everything in between. It's a literary device that contrasts two opposites so that it includes everything along the spectrum. Verse two picks up where we think verse two would pick up, at the beginning. A time to be born and a time to die. There's a beginning and there's an end. And there's a time for everything else in between. There's a time to plant and there's a time to pluck up and there's a time for everything else in between. The the preacher is bringing together big things, huge concepts like war and peace and life and death but he's also putting together small concepts and little things, weeping and laughing, seeking and losing. The beauty of the poem includes everything as we read it. We read and we experience good times and we experience bad times. We go through happy emotions of excitement and gladness. We go through bad emotions of of somber and sadness. The preacher is trying to give us some perspective on life to help us gain a, a big picture, and to teach us that the seasons do, they come and go. And almost everyone can see the beauty of the poetry in this, in this verse in Ecclesiastes, this chapter. But Kohelet, the preacher, would not be a great counselor. As we look at Ecclesiastes 3, it's, it's riddled with pain. One person puts it this way, he says that the poem shows us the most painful ways east of Eden. And you don't have to look too far to see a lot of the painful descriptions, the terms that are used to describe life in a fallen world east of Eden. There's a time for war, a time to die, a time to hate, a time to lose, a time to tear. One commentary, in fact, calls Ecclesiastes the the hopeless struggle against an arbitrary God. Tom Hardy, the English poet and novelist, wrote about a deity that he was describing. He called it the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show. Kinda get this idea that the seasons come and go like you're turning on and off a faucet, or opening a door, or closing a door, and beginning a new one. And here's why. None of us have control over the seasons of our life. None of us have control over our circumstances. In the situations that happen to us. There's a time for everybody, everything and everybody, but none of us gets to schedule those things in our calendar or put them on our stopwatch. Verse nine becomes the greatest sucker punch of all of them in Ecclesiastes three. What gain has the worker from all of his toil, his pain, his sweat, his exertion through life and time? This poem is, is beautiful in verse, but it is ugly in truth. And that hard truth is simply this. God is God, and we are not. And he is sovereign and in control, and we are not. The problem continues down in, in verse 10, chapter three. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with, A sad and somber business. The preacher is not satisfied with the idea that there is an appropriate time for all things and for all seasons and activities. In their end, we're just busy people trying to get through life. One step at a time, one day at a time. And then when you transition to to verse 11, all of a sudden, there seems to be somewhat of a glimmer of hope. It begins this way. He has made everything beautiful in its time right he's made even the bad things even the trials even the tough seasons beautiful and it's time the preacher is calling us to tap into the beauty and the goodness of god in verse 11 this phrase there can be no mistake that god has a purpose for everything and he is working all of it out to good sure his ways are not our ways his thoughts are not our thoughts But God is not a God who is going to apologize for anything. He is not one to ask forgiveness from any of his creatures for the things that he has either specifically done or specifically allowed to happen in his perfect will. Paul's version of Ecclesiastes 3.11 would be Romans 8.28. All things work out for good to those who love God. It's the second part of verse 11 that's really troublesome for readers and for interpreters. Uh, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity, you guys might highlight that word or underline that word in verse 11. Your translations might say something completely different than eternity. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And traditionally, translators have identified eternity as the Hebrew word olam in verse 11, but not so fast. Scholars identify at least 10 different translations for this word olam in Ecclesiastes 3.11. The four basic options are this. It could mean God has put eternity on the hearts of men. He has put the world on the hearts of men. The course of the world, your third option, or fourth, he has put darkness or ignorance on the hearts of men so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What's the best translation? Uh, in 2008, a scholar named Brian Galt wrote in the Bibliotheca Sarka, is Dallas's um, journal, Scholars uh, write to and, and talk about deep concepts of exegesis and theology. And the article was called Eternity in Ecclesiastes chapter three. And he traced this word olam back to a Ugaritic stem that means darkness or ignorance. And so you've got two choices as you read this verse. And it, trust me, as I was reading to this, I was ta- talking to elders this morning, studying Ecclesiastes chapter three. This is the first time I've ever heard of this before. Everybody knows he has put eternity on the hearts of men. That might not be the greatest translation. The first choice you can have, God has put eternity into the hearts of men so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Secondly, God has put darkness or ignorance into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Commenting on the Hebrew, one scholar or commentator put it this way, his creator has made the human being a thinking being and he wasn't to pass beyond his fragmentary knowledge to discern the fuller meaning of the whole pattern, but the creator will not let the creature be his equal. Sure, we could say God has put eternity on the hearts of men, but we also must say that he has put a veil over that heart also in our sinfulness, not understanding the eternity of God and what he has done from beginning to end. Even only, what does Jesus say? about knowing the end times and what's about to come, only the Father knows what's going to happen here. So, so in many ways, yes, he has put eternity on the hearts of men, maybe darkness, ignorance, but we don't know exactly what that is. We are finite, he is infinite. We are temporary, he is eternal. Trust Christ, we can enter into a, an eternal existence with, with him. In other words, we are confined to the present. Augustine, one of the great church fathers, believed that the past and the future only exist as forces that influence us in the present. Listen to what he says. There are three realities in the mind, but nowhere else as far as I can see. For the present of past things is memory. The present of present things is attention. The present of future things is expectation. This moment in time, literally Augustine would say, this moment right now is all that we have. You can look back to the past, but you have absolutely no power to change it. You can look to the future, but you have no power to control it. As human beings, we are confined to the present. And of all of the things, of all the struggles that we have, As sinners against an all-holy, all-knowing God, I think one of the worst of all of them is the fact of being discontent. Not knowing certain things. Times and seasons can be good. Life, birth, plenty, joy. But all of us look back and say, wow, that time just went way too fast. I wish I could have hung on to it a little bit longer. Times and seasons can be wearisome. Pain, loss, death, tragedy, trials. And they seem to never go away. So you're walking through a season of of marriage woes. You're going through trials and temptations. You've just lost your job and trying to figure out how you're gonna make it day to day until something else comes around. You've lost a loved one, a family member. You can't simply pick up the pieces of your past and put them back together in a way that makes life enjoyable or even makes sense to you. Almost all of us, almost all of us, will turn to something or someone for those problems to go away through those seasons of life. Why? Because we all want control. We all wanna know how things are gonna turn out. We all wanna know the end from the beginning. We all wanna flip to the last chapter and figure out how our life story is going to end. But guess what? We don't have that choice. We are not sovereign. We didn't write our own story. We are not the authors of our own story. Only God knows those things. And certainly we know how redemption in the story of history finally ends because we see that in the final pages of Scripture. But for us and, and for this world, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. I can tell you half the country is going to be really upset by it. The other half is going to be really encouraged by it. And both of them are going to place a whole lot of hope in men and systems. So we experience uh, bad things and, and tumultuous times. And, and we all go back to Genesis 3. I think this poem, more than anything, and I think Ecclesiastes 3.11, more than anything, is reminiscent of of Genesis, one through three. And remember what happened? Remember what Satan's lie was? Because if only we had control, if only we knew what was going to happen to us and how these things were going to work out, then and then we could have peace in any circumstance, in any situation, then we could figure out life, then we would always be joyful, we would always be content, And we would always be happy. But remember the lie from Satan? You will not surely die in the day of you eat of it, but your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Why do so many of us want that control? Why do we just have to know? Why do we all want to be like God? And that's really the root of all sin and that's the root of all discontentment. Pride and Control. So many of us are living our lives out of an illusion that we have control, that we can be in control. And the Bible's answer to you is, and this gospel's answer to you is very simple. It's repent. Come to the realization that God is God and you are not. And confess all of the ways that you have been grasping for control, for your power to live life the way that you want to live it, You repent of that mindset, and you totally change your mind, and give all of that over to God, confessing that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's grace, that not only are you not in control, but you don't want control, because if you were in control, and if I was in control, I can tell you what would happen at the end of that story. It would not work out well. God is the only one that we can trust, who can use even bad circumstances to bring us closer and closer to him for joy and contentment in him. No other God can offer something like that. He is ultimately in control and so we repent, we ask God for forgiveness. And the truth of the gospel is the one that had complete control sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and he never was without that control dying on a cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might have everlasting life, that no matter what the seasons are in life, no matter the trials, the circumstances, the situations, he is in control. And he gives us a glorious, happy ending to the story. Peace in a relationship with him forever that is unencumbered by sin and any weightiness of a disconnection with a holy God. Total peace with him. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon, give yourself over to God's control. Lay yourself down on his altar and put your hands, your, your life, into the loving hands of a God who is in control. Let's look at a couple points of application. God has written a story of redemption on the pages of history. God has written a story of redemption on the pages of history, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And the one thing that he asks us to do is to redeem our time on earth before your time in glory. Redeem your time on earth before your time in glory. Look down at at verse 12. The preacher says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Circumstances should play a very limited role in the life of a believer. The seasons of life should play a very limited role in our relationship and our contentment with God. Ephesians 5 verse 16 puts it this way, "'Make best use of your time, redeem the time, "'because the days are evil.'" Notice the the things that the preacher tells us to find, to seek, joy, doing good. Those are the things that we pursue no matter what life circumstances bring our way. That we can keep a joyful countenance and a contentment in God who is ultimately in control. This is God's gift to man, to enjoy life while you have it. Eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of your toil. Verse 13. Number two. God's eternal control should not drive us to worry, but ultimately drive us to worship. God's eternal control should not drive us to worry, but should drive us to worship. Ecclesiastes, look down at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So that people fear before Before him, God's eternal control should not drive us to worry, but ultimately to worship. And the the word that the preacher uses to identify a lifestyle that is consistently caught up in a submission and adoration and love relationship with God is to fear him. So we fear God more than we fear anything else, more than we fear whoever's elected, more than we fear whatever happens in our life circumstances, whatever medical ailments, whatever plagues. Whatever viruses are out there, we fear God because we love God more than we love anything. So this understanding of God's control drives us to worship Him. As an unbeliever, the only thing that you can do in response to an all-holy God is to fear for your life. As a believer, when you are caught up in a relationship, a loving relationship with God through Christ, that fear shifts now to a loving submission to a glad and joyful worship to God. It is still fear, it is an adoration, but it it has shifted from concern of existence before holy God to now having a loving relationship before holy God. Because why? He's in control of all things. Nothing happens outside of God's knowledge, understanding, and sovereignty. And so we worship him no matter what. What did Job say? The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, and so we say, blessed be the name of the Lord, despite everything that happens to us. God's eternal control should not drive us to worry, but to worship. Number three, God is lovingly searching to fix the broken, heal the hurting, and find the lost. He is lovingly searching to fix the broken, heal the hurting, and find the lost. Look at verse 15. That which is, already has been, That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Do you notice that in your text? If verse 15 says nothing else about God, it talks about his shepherding, loving care to bring back the things that have strayed, to find the loss, to seek the hurting, and to heal the brokenness in people's lives. Because God is in control and because he is working all things out for beauty in his time and his perfect plan, we can trust the shepherd that is always searching for us, that is always seeking us. And his redemption is full and it is complete. There is no part of redemption that doesn't impact every aspect of our life. There is no part of our life that isn't touched in some way by God's complete and perfect redemption. He will make all things new. He will put together all of the pieces without a shadow of a doubt, and he will do it in his time, in his way, in his glory. And so what do we do in response to the seasons, the constantly changing times and circumstances in our life? We trust, we believe, we follow a loving shepherd who is seeking our hearts and to make our lives completely new for his purposes and ultimately for his glory. This is uh, t- 2020. If you were going to put turn, turn, turn to 2020, we could make quite a, few, quite a few lines out of that, right? It's just interesting that this passage of Scripture comes to us at this time of our nation, before an election, and also with the, the culture and the society that, that we're living in. God's still in control of it. None of this has caught him off guard. And we need to lay down our control and submit to and lovingly follow the one shepherd who is in control totally and completely. He's got a plan and a purpose for all of it. We know how the story ends. Our job is simply to trust him. So let's pray. And I'm gonna ask the, uh, the deacons and elders, if you guys don't mind going back, we're gonna serve the Lord's Supper in just a little bit here. Father in heaven, um, you are a good God and you are in control. No matter what seasons of life that we are going through, you remind us that we can trust you through all things. Help us to identify those areas of our life where we are flustered and we get angry when we are not in control. Help us to confess those things, to repent of them, bring us back to the truth of the gospel that we so desperately need you and your control over everything in our lives. So we trust you, God, that you are working out all things for your glory and for your perfect plan. as this week transpires and um, the events of our life unfold, seasons will come and seasons will go. Tough times are around the corner for all of us. Give us the faith and the courage to trust that you are using all things for your good and perfect plan for us and ultimately for your glory. God, we, we thank you so much and we, we ask that this time of taking the Lord's Supper would draw us closer and closer to the truth of the gospel, to the forgiveness of sins, and to the loving community of saints that we have right here at Tulsa Bible Church. We ask these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. Amen.